This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 429 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Dr. L. Schwab. Now, L. entered the world of law enforcement, serving a multitude of roles, from detective to CSI hostage negotiation, and many, many more. She then transitioned into the world of psychology following her own mental health struggles. So as I'm sure you can imagine, this was an incredible conversation. Before we get to the interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, hit subscribe, leave feedback. I really do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of 429 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. L. Schwab. Enjoy. So, Elle, I want to start by saying thank you so much. I know we've uh, we've been planning this for a long time, and thank you to Jason Ramos for connecting us, but we are sitting down and having the conversation today. So, thank you and welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Um, I am actually in Southern California. Brilliant. All right. So, I'd love to start at the very beginning. So, tell me where you were born, and then your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Okay, so I was born um, up by Lake Erie, Pennsylvania, by the Great Lakes, and my parents divorced when I was two, and I have um, two sisters. One is a stepsister, and the other one is biological, but um, because of that whole divorce thing, we really don't talk that much. It, It was a strange dynamic, so... So with that, so it's funny, you know, there's such a spectrum of 
childhood trauma of, of you know guests that have come on and you know obviously that definitely factors into struggling as we get into a profession and some you know is immense very obvious trauma you know sexual and domestic abuse and some is more subtle it's it's being um adopted it's, it's going through a divorce it's being the middle child that felt they weren't loved so when you look back now with with the journey you've been in with the you know the psychology education do you look at any kind of factors that contributed to you struggling later in life? You know what? I do. I do. And it's so funny you bring that up because what made me want to be a cop was I remember being young and I was with my younger stepsister and my biological mother and my stepfather were in a domestic and he was choking her over the kitchen sink. And I could hear them arguing, but I couldn't see them because I was in the back bedroom with her trying to play with dolls. And I looked up in the hallway and in this picture that was hanging in the hallway, I saw the reflection of him choking her. And that's when I told her to stay there and don't come out. And I went out there and I got between them and he was a very tall man, like six foot something. And I was just young at the time. And I was, I just got between them and I was hitting him in his stomach and told him to get off of her. And so that I think is what drove me to be a police officer, you know, for, for some reason, you know, when I had the option to stay with her and just let it play out, even though I was very young, I decided to just, you know, go and try to protect her. And then, um, of course that was after my parents divorced and then my father remarried, um, when I was an early teenager. And so my, my stepmother adopted me at the age of 13. So I really haven't had much communication with um, my biological mother and my stepfather and my sister since then. Right, yeah. So that, so there's a significant, you know, elements of trauma there, whether it's the actual domestic violence, whether it's the abandonment issue. I mean, there's a lot. And it's funny because we're kind of, I think our generation was taught like, oh, that that's nothing. That's trivial. You're fine. You know, everyone, everyone's divorced. Everyone's parents are divorced. And I think that when you look at us, you know, tribally as a species and go back, you know, a long, long time, you didn't have that dynamic in a tribe. You didn't have a child that was born and never saw a parent again. So I think we downplay the impact of, you know, childhoods like that. I agree with you. I agree with you. We come from a time when... Um, you know, you, you spank your kids and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And like you said, it's just, oh, you know, people get divorced and, you know, sometimes people get mad and, you know, these kinds of things happen, but, you know, it really does affect our, um, psychological well-being and our, and our dynamics of how we raise our own children and those types of things. So yeah, definitely. I think, People think, oh, you know, I'm just supposed to suck up and take it, but they don't realize that that comes out later in life. Absolutely. Well, with you obviously ending in, in the uh, law enforcement community, were you an athlete? Did you play a lot of sports as a young girl? I did. I did. I played um, varsity softball and varsity volleyball also. Beautiful. And did you have any uh, law enforcement or first responders in your family? No, I did not. I'm the only one. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what about when you were in, you know, more like high school age, what were you dreaming career wise? Was it always law enforcement or did you have something originally? Well, I initially thought about being a doctor, um, like a medical doctor, but in the back of my mind, I just was always so fascinated by law enforcement. So, 
you know, that was just all for some reason I was just always drawn to that. So. Right. And I know you got into it early. So kind of lead me through your path into, you know, the, the training and then getting hired and then what your, you know, probation was like in that department. So I remember the first time, cause I was working at a sheriff's office first. And then I remember the first time that I applied for the police department, I can't remember why, but I didn't, I didn't get picked up to like take to take the test or whatever. And um, one of my friends said, you know what, you just, you have to try again. You know, it's worth trying again. So I tried again and then, you know, he was right. I ended up getting in and I passed the physical exam and the psychological exam and everything. And then I ended up going into the academy and it was so strange because it, I didn't have a lot of fight drive, like physical fight drive initially. So, you know, they, I would stay after a lot to do, you know, defensive tactics and things because I just didn't, it just was odd to me to like physically be a physical aggressor, you know, and, and put my hands on other people because I wasn't raised that way. And so eventually at some point something clicked and then I ended up getting the nickname Pitbull. So, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah, so that was, it was great. I, it was a great time. I learned so much about myself and just the strengths I had. And then my first assignment, I was assigned to a platoon where they had one female officer and unfortunately she was killed in the line of duty. So, you know, it was, it was kind of rough at the beginning, you know, that the guys were, you know, kind of guarded towards me and the, my sergeant at the time said, you know, they're, you know, they lost the last female that we had. And so it was, it was kind of difficult, but, you know, he gave me a heads up and then eventually, you know, I won them over and, you know, it felt good when I would respond and they weren't calling me off, you know, because they, they knew that I didn't have any problem, you know, putting my hands on, on someone if necessary. So yeah, it it was a little bit of a, of a rough start. She was a a great officer from what I understand. So yeah, well, I mean, if, if you're okay telling it, I'd love to, you know, put the story out there of her and her heroism, you know, and so that, that she is remembered. What was her name and, and how was she killed? Um, her name was Sheila Herring, and she actually came from the Detroit Police Department. And then she was killed in the line of duty. I believe it was outside a small club um, in Virginia. And so they responded to a disturbance and she ended up being shot and killed there. So um, she did make it in the ambulance to the hospital where she eventually succumbed to her injuries. That's horrific. Well, you, you mentioned that you got hired, you know, ultimately quite young, and then you made detective. And actually, you know what? Let me, I'm going to ask that again because I, I don't want to skip something. So you ended up, you know, starting a journey through psychology and mental health as you progressed in your career. When you first got hired, was there any discussion on, on that side? I mean, many of these departments, including my own early in our career, there wasn't. I think it was a different culture then. What about yours specifically? No, you know what? It um, There wasn't too much discussion on that. As a matter of fact, when I when I transitioned to the city police department, there we didn't really touch base on mental health, that kind of stuff. Of course, we always had training, you know, on how to deal with people in crisis and individuals with mental illness, that type of stuff. But as far as 
officers or professionals, how we handle our own issues. No, that was never really presented again. It was kind of that suck it up and, you know, move on kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned that you made detective very early. So can you walk me through the journey to detective? And if there are any significant calls that, you know, uh, left a mark for lack of a better words, and then your journey into CSI after that? Oh, you know what? There, there are so many, James, you're so good. (laughs) So I made detective, it was about two years into my career. And my sergeant at the time had said that he, you know, I knew that he had come from the detective division and he had mentioned to me that might be a good move for me. Of course, you know, a lot of the guys were like, ah, you need more street experience. You know, why do you want to go over and, you know, be one of the people in a suit and all this stuff? But I was just very intrigued, you know, about finding answers. So he actually had me do this investigation um, on a pursuit that I was in. And he made me act as the detective on the case. And so I had been in this pursuit and he made me go into the next jurisdiction and speak with the people and do my own investigation. And he said, if you, if you do this, then I'll recommend you for detective. And so, you know, of course, it wasn't so much about being recommended. It was like, I cannot fail. You know, I'm I'm not, I'm not going to fail. I'm going to, I'm a female and I have to do this and I have to prove myself. So I ended up doing that and they recommended, he recommended me for detective. So I moved over to detective. It was a little over two years in my career. And then I worked in general assignment and which is, you know, you kind of respond to to homicide, robbery, home invasion, all those types of things, burglary, all this stuff so that you can get an exposure to everything and just understand all of the, all of the investigation, um, that's completed by the detective division by investigative services. So I ended up being approached by the sergeant at the time in robbery, and then also a sergeant and CSI and, you know, everyone encouraged me to, to go to CSI. So I ended up going there and it was very interesting. Again, I was the first female to work in CSI. So, you know, there was that drive of, I have to succeed. I have to make sure that I do this right. And I do it well so that, you know, they first understand that women can do the job. And second, just, you know, credibility is everything right. in our profession. So there were so many different calls, but I do remember, there, the very first call that I had, there was a a hit and run involving a little girl. I think she was five or six. And I had to go into the bay where we held the cars. And I had to go up under this car and scrape her burnt flesh from the tailpipe, from the exhaust of where the man ran her over so that we could, you know, tie her to the car and then the car to him. So it was, I thought to myself, wow, this is, this is how I'm starting this. You know, I, first of all, it, it was, I hadn't really been under a car very many times in my life, but then to go under there and then have the CSI detective that's training me explain what I need to do and him to be right there supporting me. It still was difficult. It, it was challenging to know what I was collecting and the reason I was collecting it. 
Well, that's, that's a group. You know, there's many people that fall through the cracks when we talk about mental health. I think dispatch is definitely one of them. Um, but then you think about, you know, the, the morticians, the medical examiners, CSI. That's another group that may not be out there, you know, seeing, you know, being the very first responder, but they see the same, you know, horrendous macabre images that the rest of us do. So, you know, with in that field, you know, what was your exposure to, to trauma in that position specifically? Well, of course, you're, it's not firsthand trauma, right, where, you know, you're involved in a, a shooting or domestic or something like that. It's, of course, secondary, but they're just, I think it just seems so abnormal when, you know, you're investigating like the death of a child. First of all, it's so difficult because, you know, children are so young and they're so innocent and we all are often the given the opportunity to grow older. And so I think for a lot of, you know, firemen, dispatchers, police officers, anyone who works in the first responder field, I think it's very challenging anytime you have to deal with the death of a of a child or a baby, anything like that. And so it was challenging for me dealing with anything involving you know, a child, an infant, SIDS deaths, even though, you know, that sometimes happens and, you know, we're made to believe, okay, this, this sometimes happens to infants. It still was a struggle. I had a partner who his wife was pregnant at the time. And when we went to this call, you know, it was a man in the Marines, he was deployed and his wife had just had a baby and unfortunately the baby passed away in the crib from Sid. So, you know, having to pick up the the little boy, the infant and hold it and check him and that kind of stuff, you know, when when he's cold and in rigor, I mean, that was a major trigger to my partner. And he said, I'm sorry, I I, I can't do this right now, you know, and he was very upset. And so I finished doing everything I needed to with the scene and but it, it's just so different. You know, you're there after the fact, even if it's a, a homicide or something like that. Yeah, you're there after the fact, but somebody's life is taken. Something traumatic just happened on top of the fact that you hear the family going through their emotions. So it's very difficult. Yeah, well, I think that's something that I hear more from responders, whether they've, you know, coped well, whether they've been in crisis. It's the same through line. It's not so much the the victim it's the reaction from the family and one example i use i've talked about this before i had you know a young man in his late 20s literally just dropped dead in um while taking his dog to a kennel and he just had a brain bleed you know nothing we could do the code went as well as any code i've ever run but when you know when we were done the gentleman didn't make it you know i'm there writing my report and the grieving room is is literally not even it's six feet away from where I'm typing my report. And as awful as it was to lose the man, it was hearing the the pain in the family that really, to me, was the worst part of that call. And I think that's what I hear a lot of responders, you know, talking about is it's it's the people left behind and their pain that really resonates with us. Yeah. And I as you're saying that I'm thinking about, you know, different situations and, you know, especially with that marine family i mean i i was in there trying to do my investigation and do all this stuff and the fact that she was just in the next room 
sobbing and just everybody was crying. And then her saying, you know, the Marine hadn't got a chance to meet his son. I have chills just telling you because it, it was terrible. It was terrible. And I think it's because we're compassionate people and we're empathetic people. That's what drives us to be in these fields in the first place. And then we have individuals who are having pain, you know, they're, they're experiencing a lot of pain, emotional pain, and they're grieving. And, you know, we're just kind of expected, you know, the presence is set that, you know, in your case, you know, you write the report, or in my case, I do the, I, you know, do do the investigation and take the photos and everything. And then we're supposed to just go on to the next call or the next situation. And we don't ever get a chance to process that and work through it. And so it eventually just starts to build up on us. Absolutely. Well, up to that point, when you were in CSI, had you had you noticed any sort of, um, you know, mental, I wouldn't say mental ill health, but you know, the the challenges to to your overall happiness at that point? I think everything at the beginning was, it was pretty good. You know, I just was very focused on, you know, doing the job, doing it right, making sure that, you know, when you're working over 20 hours on a homicide, that you're putting everything in the right bags and everything is assigned to the right people. And so I think at the beginning, I was just so focused on being successful and making sure that everyone understood that women could do that job, that I really didn't take the time to think about what I was feeling and what I had going on. It was kind of later in the downtime when that kind of crept up on me, right? And was kind of weight that I was carrying around and I, and I would try to keep myself busy so I didn't think about it. But yeah, it, it definitely it can creep up on you. It can creep up on you for sure. So I, in the beginning, I was so focused. I didn't think about it, but in the downtimes or quiet time, yes, yes. I always stayed busy. I was a busy body. People would always say, you're always going somewhere. You're always doing something. And yeah, I like to stay busy, but a lot of it was, I was just trying to not have to be in my own thoughts and my own feelings. Yeah. Well, and that's something that again has come up over and over again there's two there's two things i think that draw us to these professions one is the protector role and i think that's definitely the strongest one you know the 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 trying to stop the domino effect and and you know that that cycle ends with you you become instead of the victim or or even worse the abuser you become the protector but another element i think that draws people to the military the first responders is there is that adrenaline there is that that way of kind of diving into a profession and being so busy and being so, you know, hyper-focused that you, the white noise goes away. And what I hear from many of the responders that have been on here is that works for a while until it all comes crashing down. They're forced to be present. They're forced to be with those thoughts. And then it does one of two things, destroys them or they grow from it. And that, that makes sense. And I think the time that you're talking about, that's when a lot of alcohol comes into play for people or, you know, maybe some drug use here and there, or, you know, if they're retired or something, it may be more significant, but yeah, I, I have officers and people that will call me now and say, you know, I really wish you could talk to so-and-so because he's really struggling or officers will be 
messaging me and they're clearly intoxicated, you know, and I'm trying to help them process and work through their feelings. But yeah, it's, it can be very difficult to deal with. And I think, like you said, when that noise is gone and there's that silence, we don't want silence because that's, you know, when the ghosts come, you know, that's when, you know, the sun starts to go behind the cloud and you have to decide what you're going to do to process and move forward. So it, it makes complete sense what you're saying. Yeah. Well, then there's a vicious circle that happens as well, again, from my observations where you get, you know, a, a group that usually takes more overtime. They do more work. Maybe they do a second job, whatever it is, but they work and they work and they work. And especially if they stay within this field, a lot of that overtime is going to be overnight, especially in the fire service. So now you're working more, you're sleeping less, and so you're compounding the issue, and it just accelerates that journey towards crisis. It does, and I'm so glad that you that you brought that up because it's so true. You know, you'll see people working extra shifts or working side jobs, and you know, sometimes you know, of course, it's because you know, they have a baby coming or maybe they need repairs on the house or something like that. And so they're working extra shifts, but normally that's a good indicator. That's a key indication that something is going on when all of a sudden someone has been through a traumatic experience and all of a sudden they're working a lot, a lot, you know, and that's a a key indicator right there that, that something could be going on in the background that someone, you know, should pull the person aside and say, Hey, you know, I just wanted to check on you. And I noticed you're working a lot, that type of thing. Cause you're right. We, we just keep ourselves busy. We keep moving because when we stop, that's when we have to address our feelings. And again, it's not, it wasn't always supported, you know, to talk about your feelings and get that kind of stuff out. And so, you know, it's like, well, I just have to keep working. It's, you know, this is, this is stupid. You know, I shouldn't feel this way and those types of things. And so they just keep moving forward and they don't ever address truly what's going on. But eventually, as I had explained to Jason one day, those, you can't push those thoughts and those feelings away forever. They're going to come out. Yeah. There's, there's a Mexican proverb. It says they thought the, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. And it's such a beautiful, you know, sentence that sums up exactly what we're talking about. Like, yeah, you can push them down, but eventually they're going to grow and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I think we have to look at our careers as we start and, you know, that first traumatic situation that we're in that that seed is planted right and it's it's gonna grow i think every time you know in relation to that proverb you're talking about every time we experience something traumatic we water that seed you know and it's gonna eventually grow into something so you know i think we have to look at it like it's not gonna go away it's just a natural human reaction especially in the field that we're in And we need to be kind to ourselves and we need to just figure out a way to maneuver through that and try to bring something positive out of it. Absolutely. Well, with your own personal journey then, so, you know, you were in CSI, kind of walk me through the the other kind of roles that you have. And then as a parallel, when, when did you start feeling different within yourself? So after CSI, I ended up 
transferring out of there and I was having some issues with my sergeant. We ended up having a follow out, uh, falling out, which is very sad because eventually he ended up taking his wife's life and then he took his own life. So he had a lot of stuff going on and I was studying psychology at the time and he was just shut down. We wouldn't get the supplies and things that we needed. God bless him. And it was just very difficult for us to do our job. And the senior detective had to step in a lot and go and talk to him and say, Hey, we need this. We need that. Cause he would miss a lot of work. And we knew that he was unhealthy and that there was something going on, but he just wasn't sharing anything with us. And so I ended up having a falling out with him. I honestly don't remember what it was because it was so long ago, but a couple times we exchanged words and he pretty much said, you know, you need to stay in your place. So I ended up leaving from there and I was asked to go work in the school system because it was the inner city. They asked me to go work and be a school resource officer. So I did that for like five years or so. And it was, it was a, a nice break, a nice break from the norm. And then from there, I went back out to the street. I was a field training instructor. I became a hostage negotiator. I was training other officers to be negotiators. So I think what started the the whole transition for me was I was studying psychology at the time, developmental psychology. So I was learning how we should develop as people as we're going through life. And so I was kind of educating myself, but I was also able to see changes in myself. And so as I was, you know, tran- transferring to these different positions, I noticed when I got out of the school and I went back to the street, that first, you know, some of those first traumatic incidents that I was exposed to hit me a lot harder than normal. And I think it was because when you're working in the school, you're focused about school safety and, you know, making sure people are practicing the lockdowns and that people's kids go home safe every day. And so that was, again, my focus, right? That's what I was focused on. And so I was focused on that and I didn't have to deal with too much trauma at the time. So when I came out of there and went back into the street you know, and I was experiencing shootings and domestics and different deaths. That's when, you know, I thought to myself, wow, this is, this is a lot. It felt like it was harder to take on then than it was initially because I had that break. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Well, it makes so much sense because I'm guessing as an SRO, you were working days and you were sleeping every night. Yeah, I was, I was. And I think the biggest stressors that I had was just, I always tried to make sure I handled everything in the school, unless there was like a big fight, you know, with a lot of kids. I tried not to bother the patrol officers with coming to the school because I knew from working in patrol that they had their own, you know, things to deal with. And of course, during the summer, I would be back out on patrol when the, when the schools were closed. But yeah, it's, it was like you said, just getting up every day, doing my Monday through Friday, you know, dealing with irate parents and kids getting into fights and that kind of stuff. And so when I went back to the street, it was, 
it was significant for me. Like those first few traumatic calls, it was a big hit. Well, staying on the SRO role just for a moment, um, about a year ago, pretty much exactly to, to this day, um, I had an incident with my son's school. Actually, just over a year the first time. Um, and very long story short, he was going through some stuff in, in his mother's house, again, witnessing arguing and, you know, just completely disruption again. And he had that several times. I'm not throwing shit at her, but it just, it is what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, he was upset. He was, um, you know, off out of sorts a little bit and was in a classroom. You're doing a visualization exercise. He's in tears. The teacher asks him what's wrong. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm seeing these things in my head. You know, there's this kid that was bullying him. I'm seeing him and hearing this voice saying, um, saying kill. Now he's, not threatening anyone. He's just sitting there at a desk in tears. So mm-hmm. very long story short, um, let me see how, I, I think he, he wasn't on the bus. So I called the school and they're like, oh yeah, we got him here. Um, yeah, we got an issue going on. We'll let you know. Well, I didn't, they didn't talk to me. didn't tell me anything. The next thing I hear, he's been shipped off to a psychiatric center, Baker Act for three days, psychiatric hold. And, you know, I obviously lost my shit and, you know, I was just so fucking angry and he was literally in there for, for three full days. And when, mm-hmm. you know, when I spoke to the people in the facility and they were fantastic, they were like, I don't know why he sent. While he was there, five other middle school children cycled through the same facility. And this is a rural, you know, we're, we're not in a place where there's lots of fights or anything. I mean, we're talking about children, you know, that mm-hmm. are probably just going through some emotional issues at the, you know, early teens age. And mm-hmm. so when I started exploring it, I saw that now in 2021, 20, we have a, a horrendous issue of children being shipped off to psychiatric facilities because, you know, it's wipe my hands. You know, there's been the school shootings, any, any mention of any word, any mention of self-harm, anything, these are things we're just going to lock them away for three days. Now that's, that happened here. That's my thing. But with you being in that position for so long, what did you witness as far as mental health in the school children and how was that dealt with in the school that you were actually at? So I was in two different schools. The first one was a middle school and then the second one was a, a high school. Um, but what you're saying, I, I, totally, I totally understand what you're talking about because there were, you know, we're talking about kid where I was kids that, you know, were in inner city schools. A lot of them come from lower socioeconomic status homes, you know, uh, probably 80, 85% African-American, um, the population of the school and the area. And so, you know, there were a lot of challenges with these kids, a lot of them. And, you know, I think what, help me be able to deal with the situations is having an education and understanding that, you know, when kids are angry, that normally stems and adults too, that normally stems from frustration. So, you know, you kind of have to take time to talk to them and say, okay, what's going on with you? You know, and I can say that probably 90% of the fights that I had to break up, it had to deal with some sort of bullying where, you know, kids just got tired of their friend being bullied or something like that. And so, you know, it was, and there were a few suicides when I worked at the middle school where students had killed themselves over 
being bullied. So it's a significant issue. I don't recall any students being put on like any type of a hold or going to a mental health facility, but they were also very good about, you know, if I saw someone being bullied or something, you know, I would step in and say, you want to bully someone, bully me, you know, let's, you know, let's bully each other, you know, so you can see what it feels like. And parents are probably listening to this, like, oh my gosh, she's terrible. But <laughs> you know, it's, you know, I, I would tell them, you know, you want to pick a fight, pick a fight with me. You know, I'll take my gun belt off and my badge, you know, and, and we can fight each other. You know, I especially did that at the high school level, but I didn't see that I can recall any students go off to any type of mental health facility. But if there was a student that had significant issues, I would take them to intake for juveniles and have them talk to the counselor there and the intake officer there and see about some sort of charge to get them before the court to draw attention to the fact there was an issue at home. So, you know, some of these kids would experience, you know, domestic violence in the house between their moms and their boyfriends and the police wouldn't be called. And the only person that, of course, you know, that's on the the parents, it's the parents' fault also, but, you know, the kid again is just innocent. You know, they're just trying to live and go to school. And so I would take those kids over to intake and we would talk to the counselor there and the intake officer there and then they could put some more resources into place and possibly take them before the court so that we could address the underlying issue, right? Because it's a juvenile, so the parent has to come into court. And then I would say, you know, I broke up this fight and the parent and the child was sharing this situation and we need to get resources in place. So I kind of, you know, took the back way in. But yeah, that's kind of how I handled the situations because you know, most of the time what what's going on with our children, it stems from things at home, whether it's, you know, in your situation, he might have been frustrated with, you know, everything going on and that kind of stuff. And I feel I feel bad for him or any child that is trying to share their feelings and they get put in the situation that he was put in because it's definitely it's not right. Yeah. Well, and that's what I witnessed. I mean, he ended up being traumatized by the stay. I mean, he, you know, here he is in tears being, being bullied, but he obviously having some upheaval in one of the two households. The next thing he's having his shoelace taken from him and stuck in a, you know, a concrete room for three days. So, I mean, it was such a, you know, abandonment of, of responsibility, in my opinion. And when I went to the school and the law enforcement agency, both of them blamed each other. It was the most disgusting lack of ownership I've ever seen in my entire life. So as you can tell, I'm still on the crusade to, to fix it. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it, it was great to get your perspective because I don't think that's normal. I think what you said is de-escalation, especially if there's no threat. Cause it was done as though he was going to shoot up the school. The kid was crying with his head on the desk. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, yeah. he didn't walk yeah. in with a trench coat and a bag full of guns. So, you know, it was absolutely ridiculous. So, uh, anyway, uh, thank you for sharing your perspective. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, then moving on. So, so you said that when you came back out of the, uh, SRO position, that's when, you know, you started to feel more of the weight of, of the job. So, you know, how did that journey continue? So, 
when I came out of the SRO position, like I said, I, I became a field training instructor. And so I ended up having rookies, you know, that would come with me on all my calls and everything and would ride with me in the car. And so they always, they always gave me people from the academy that the, the field experience was either going to make them or break them. So, you know, the, the secretary, you know, would pull me aside or I would go over and talk to the training academy and ask them, you know, what was going on with the person. Some of them had already been through another officer for three months and, you know, they didn't make it with them. And so, you know, I had to make the decision of whether or not they were going to make it or not. And so of course that's difficult, you know, because we all have this passion to be in law enforcement and, you know, to be a cop. And then here I am having to make a decision, you know, and some of them unfortunately had to be terminated. And, you know, and I would tell them from the beginning, you're in this car because you're not doing good and you're probably not going to make it. So, you know, I challenge you to prove otherwise, but if you end up, you know, losing your job, that's on you. It's, it's not on me. So the, the first few things I had to deal with was the rookies that I had, they were just standing there while, while I was in fights with people just standing there. Right. And so, you know, I'm thinking to myself, this is not what I signed up for. You know what I'm saying? Because I, again, come from, you know, old school policing and, you know, and I have these younger people that are, you know, just standing around, not wanting to be in a physical altercation. And it's like, you know, it's not about beating the person up. It's about safety, you know, getting them under control, you know, deescalating the situation, finding out who needs charges, that type of thing. And so a few times I found myself in physical altercations with suspects that were, you know, six foot something. And then, you know, the rookies just kind of stand in there, you know, scared to death, you know? So I'm like, I sign up for that, you know? So of course we'd have it out. Me and the rookie would have it out. But then there were other situations where, you know, someone would be, you know, they're one of the situations that I remember and it's, and I know you have seen this. I know so many people have seen this. And when I share this with my patients that, that have served overseas, they, they are just so elated that I can, that I have seen this, but there was one situation where a guy, <clears throat> excuse me, had been with these military people. They were all at a bar and they went back to their house to have some drinks and, two of the guys ended up in an argument in the kitchen. And so they didn't really know each other because they had met each other at this bar. And I guess the military guy said, Hey, you know, why don't you come back to our house? We're going to have some drinks and continue the party there. So he went to this house, not knowing these people very well. And so they got into an argument over one of the girls and he picked up a railroad tie in the kitchen because of course he didn't know the military guy. He didn't know, you know, anything about him. And so, you know, I guess he was kind of fearful. And so he picked up the railroad tie. Well, the guy he was arguing with pulled out a gun and shot him. And then they called 911. And so thank God I didn't have a rookie at the time, but I was with my partner. We both responded and we cleared the house and I, and the guy was laying on the floor in the kitchen and he was bleeding. So I, I put my, you know, I got a towel and I put direct pressure on him 
And I was just, you know, I said to him, cause I could tell he was fading and you know, that look when they're like fading away. And so I'll never forget. I tapped on his right leg and I said, I said, Hey, stay with me, stay with me, you know, help us on the way. The medics are coming, stay with me. And he turned and looked at me and there was no color in his eyes. You know, it's like the, it looks like a mirror back there. And so, you know, when I saw that, I just, I was like, oh, he's not going to make it, you know, this, he's not, he's not going to make it. And he looked at me and I just kept talking to him and kept trying to keep him alive. And then of course the medics came and, and he ended up dying at the hospital. But, you know, those few things that I stepped into right after coming out of being an SRO, it was just, I was like, wow, this is, you know, it, it hit me, especially the guy that was in the kitchen, you know, the one that was shot that ended up passing away. Because when I saw his, the look in his eyes and the color, you know, being gone, and it looked like there was a mirror in his eyes, I knew that he wasn't going to make it. And so, you know, I think a lot of us have seen that in people that we've tried to rescue. And that's just something that you, you don't forget, I don't think. No. Well, I talk about this a lot. You know, the inability to save, I think, is so crippling because, you know, we're, we're raised, especially in, in the fire EMS side. Well, if you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to save the person. But the reality is you do X, Y, and Z textbook, you know, and they still die. And I've had that. I've talked about this a lot. You know, when it came to cardiac arrests, I never brought a single person back. I'm, I'm an anomaly. Most medics have, but I just didn't. I had the, the brain bleeds, the GI bleeds, the, you know, all the, the triple A's, all the things that you just don't come back from. And that was, you know, that was what I was dealt with. And it is, it's a, it's, it's a weight. It's, you, know, you have that feeling of guilt and that feeling of just helplessness. Like why? Why, when I did everything right, did this not work? Why did they still die? And I think that's something that that really does weigh on a lot of people because when you train, you, you know, you take your job seriously, you do everything right and people still die, then it's very hard to make sense of it. Yes, it is. And then I think, you know, that when you have that feeling of loss, like you're discussing, it's very difficult, but then it goes back to the other traumatic things, right? Where we we know what they're feeling because we've heard the cries, right? The screaming, the, my baby, all those things before. So it just like slowly starts to pile up. Absolutely. I remember uh, there was a, I think it was 15 year old shot in a park in, in California when I worked out there. And I'll never forget the scene was kind of quiet because I think they thought that we were, we showed up, we were going to save this kid. But I mean, he was DOA. And I'll never forget when I pulled the yellow blanket over there was just this whole chorus of shrieking and screaming began. But in the macabre sense of humor that we have, the first thought, I just was like, well, if I pull the sheet back, will they stop crying again? And if I do it fast, will it go, uh, 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 you know what I mean? But that was kind of the coping mechanism. Yeah. It was so yeah. terrible that I found comedy in that moment, even though in the reality was it was it was very traumatic. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you, you brought up the comedy because we do that so much, don't we? We just we laugh or we, we make jokes about something because it's, it's difficult. I remember there was a newer officer that we responded to the shooting and we pulled up on scene and the, the guy had been shot. It was a drug deal gone bad and he had been shot and it actually traveled. The bullet traveled behind 
his eye sockets. And so one of his eyes was bugged and the other one was popped out completely. So his, you know, the paraorbital can't take that type of pressure. And so he, he walked over, I walked over, the guy was still alive and I didn't know if he could hear me or not, but you know, of course you don't know that. So you want to show, you know, that compassion and that empathy, right? So I'm like, you know, help us on the way, you know, just, just try to stay calm. Cause he kept trying to reach his, his mind was intact enough, James, that he kept trying to reach up to the eye that was popped out. And so the young officer said, Oh my God, I can't. And he was just standing there. And I said, well, go deal with crowd control. And so of course, later, you know, the next night in roll call, I was making fun of them and we were laughing, you know, and some of the newer officers thought that we were terrible. And, you know, we just told them that's how we, that's how we handle it. You know, we just, in our minds, we have to make these jokes and we have to, you know, make fun of each other, of course, not in front of the family and stuff, but we have to make fun of each other. And we, we have to find some sort of light at the end of the tunnel because it is so traumatic what we deal with. Absolutely. In in California, that department, they had what we call the board of shame. And if you screwed up, if if you had a moment on that, whatever it was, you would come back and that board would, would be filled with some of the most genius comedic pictures and drawings, you know, your face photoshopped onto whatever. But yeah, I mean, but, but it worked. I mean, we laughed and then, it, you know, it did help a little bit, you know. So I think in this very PC world that we find ourselves in at the moment, you have to be careful that you don't suppress expression of emotion and that includes some of the you know comedic offloading that we do yeah and i understand to some people they may not understand and it can be difficult but that i think is what has saved a lot of our lives is the fact that we have to be able to understand each other and find some sort of humor you know because in the darkest hour when we find ourselves alone, you know, that's, there were times where that's what made me laugh, right? That's what broke that, that dark moment when I thought I can't, I can't get out of this. You know, that's, that's what broke it for me was thinking about that comic relief that was tied to those particular incidents, I think. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned before about, you know, taking the rookies on their kind of second chance uh, tour. Um, that's something that you know I've talked about a lot in the fire service, like the absolutely the common denominator to forging great firefighters and medics has been in the departments where they set the bar high and there's an attrition rate. If you don't reach that bar, you don't reach the bar. If they end up with one person, then so be it. And usually in that particular department, the attrition was usually about 25%, which is a huge amount of new hires. But they ended up having great firefighters, great engineers, great captains, great chiefs. It just followed all the way up. Conversely, you know, I've worked in a place where there was no bar and, and it's an absolute shit show for lack of a better word. You know, so I've seen, I've seen that, you know, observational study from, you know, both sides of the US. Um, and, and I think that's something that I see applies to law enforcement. I'm an absolute, you know, believer that most of our men and women in blue 
do an incredible job. But what hurts them, and I was actually talking to a, a gentleman um, yesterday who is in the branding world, brands for some of the top companies in the world. And I asked him, what, what are fire and police doing wrong? And one of the issues he said, you know, is, is basically because we keep putting these worst case scenarios out there and they're, they're the ones that are on TV. And I think... You know, there's some gray areas in law enforcement where people are calling. You know, oh, it's you know, they 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 did this person. They were they were innocent, and that's bullshit. No, they weren't. They were, you know, coming at the officer with a knife. They, you know, they were doing whatever it was that warranted the officer protecting himself. But then we see these horrendous videos of three completely deconditioned officers, like some comedic WWE fight. And then the, the suspect ends up getting shot because they have zero fitness and zero DTAC skills. So with your philosophy, and obviously you ended up rising all the way to the top of the ranks, what do you think the standards should be in law enforcement for fitness, for detect, uh, um, DTAC, and also just you know hiring standards in general? Because you mentioned about if they didn't make it, you cut it. How? What, what's your philosophy on that bar? Where should it be in law enforcement? Well, I think... You know, it's so funny that you asked me this because somebody asked me the other day, how, how is that guy a cop when he's so overweight? And so, you know, I think, you know, there comes a time, of course, as you know, where, you know, in the older days, you know, people were grandfathered, right? And so, you know, I remember before I, you know, promoted and, and moved out of state, you know, the, the older officers that were close to retirement, they would always, you know, go and take reports. You know, if it was a report, you know, they would take it. And so that was just kind of the way it was understood. You know what I'm saying? If it's, if it's just a, you know, a report for a burglary, those older guys are going to go and take it because they've done their time. But I don't ever recall any of those older guys being so out of fit that if I called for backup, they couldn't come, you know, fight for our survival. So I think it's so important. You have to have the bar high enough that those ethics and morals are established and fulfilled. And you have to make sure that because we're working in a field where, you know, physical agility, being able to chase suspects or run over to someone in need, those types of things that has to be taken into consideration because without those things, we cannot effectively do our jobs and we can't effectively be there for one another. So, you know, I understand that people get older and they get, you know, close to retirement and they're still out on the street, that kind of thing, but they still need to be able to react and do what needs to be done because, you know, if he's, you know, six weeks from retirement and I need backup, I expect him to come and pull his weight. Right. And I think, I think we all feel that way, you know, and I remember there were times where people wouldn't call for, for backup. If it was only one, you know, a certain person available, they would rather be in the fight by themselves than to have that person there. Cause as you said before, there are just some people that are a shit show and it's, it's just difficult. You know, it's like, do I want to handle this on my own or do I want to have to deal with Joe over there who isn't going to be any help at all? So, and there were times where, you know, we would call people off, you know, they would say they're responding and we would call them off because there just wasn't anything they were going to be able to 
do. And I, especially in today with, you know, violence against police officers and firefighters and people just being attacked just for doing their job, we need to make sure that that there's a high standard there and that we continue to hold the bar high. And if you, if you can't make it, you know, there's a whole bunch of other people that are willing to come in behind you that will make those sacrifices, you know, to their fitness and to their health. And I, I just think it's very important. Beautiful. Well, and I agree 100%. And I think the other important part of that conversation, because it needs to be said as well, is that the administration creates an environment for those men and women that have reached that bar to thrive. And I see in the law, in fire specifically, you know, our work week is killing our men and women. It's just running them into the ground. It's definitely the, the an underlying issue for the physical ailments, for the mental health ailments. So I think that discussion has to be put on the officer, you know, or the firefighter's shoulders squarely, but also on the employer that they give them the tools. They, they give them not just, you know, six qualifying shots a year and enough ammo just to have, you know, one magazine, but actually put them through proper, you know, weapons training and, and jujitsu. And, and, and yes, of course, they should all seek that on the days off too. And, you know, add to that. But I think that this bare minimum, these budget cuts that these poor departments get over and over and over again has asked these people to do so much with so little that they're setting some departments up for failure. I agree. I agree with that. And I, I remember being a chief and, you know, people saying, why do you, why do you guys wear those tack vests? That, that is so stupid to wear those tack vests. It's so, it makes people, you know, feel uncomfortable. And that's something that the military wears. And I, you know, I would tell them you, you're going to have to get over it because my men are going to wear tack vests and I'm going to wear a tack vest. And that's just how, how it's going to be. So if it makes you feel uncomfortable, that's your issue. We need to go home at night and we need to be protected. So that's just something that you're going to have to get over. And I think, you know, I see so much where, you know, chiefs are not, you know, they're, they are so political in their position. And maybe it's because I did so many different jobs in law enforcement. And as you said, I worked my way up to police chief, but I think you you have to back the blue. As a leader, you have to back the blue. You have to back your um, firefighters and your paramedics. You have to back your your dispatchers. You know, we're all in this together. And, you know, of course, it starts with the 911 call and the dispatcher and then, you know, where they send us and what we have to do. And it doesn't it doesn't matter what people think of us. Of course, we want people to understand that we put our lives on the line because we want to help people. But in the end, the leaders shouldn't pay attention to what other people are saying, because our job as leaders is to protect our team and to be their representative, to be their voice. And so I think so many suicides and stuff are happening now because Nobody has that voice, right? No one has, even myself now as a leader, I make it a point to stand by my staff. I tell them, as long as you do what you're supposed to and you don't do something illegal or something that's gonna hurt somebody, then I'm going to stand by you. And I was like that as an officer, I was like that you know, as a chief, and I'm like that now. I think that we can't, we can't keep taking money 
from police departments, fire departments, anyone. We can't keep taking money because eventually it's going to be we're responding to save you or to help you and we don't have what we need. And then what's going to happen? You're going to attack us on social media or the news or whatever and say we didn't do A, B, and C, but we couldn't do A, B, and C because everyone said to take the money from us. So there's so much validity in what you're saying. And I, and I think, you know, I could go on and on about this, but you know, we have to have the the bar high. You have to make that cut. If you don't, there's other people and you can't short fund your people. You know, we're, we're frontline workers. You can't, you can't take money from them. They need everything that is necessary for the job. And you can't say, well, we're going to take away a rifle, but we're going to give you this. Okay. Well, that's like saying everybody, you know, just like if I took the tack vest away, you know, it's, that was needed. Right. So, you know, when, when they take things from officers or firefighters or whatever, they set us up for failure. We can't help the community. And the last thing is we just become a moving target, I think, because we don't have the stuff that we need. So it's like, okay, you don't need rifles. Okay. Well that just tells somebody, you know, shoot at us (laughs) because we don't have, we don't have what we need. Yeah. Well, I just spoke to a friend of mine that was uh, on scene for those two FBI agents that were killed down in South Florida, you know, and, and that's a perfect example. You know, they they had tactical gear and it's still, you know, two of them lost lives, two are fighting for their lives. I think one was, you know, not too badly wounded, but yeah, a single person in the house and they were serving a warrant on a, uh, you know, pedophile. So, you know, ask me, you know, I think people need to ask themselves that. All right that person abused your child would you want us to go get them absolutely you would so would you not want them to be equipped and trained to do that absolutely you would you know so yeah it's a it's a completely bogus statement but i think where we get rid of a lot of the mistakes is we set the bar high and we create an environment that's training focused and keeps that bar held high annual fitness standards so that our men and women in uniform are able to perform at the highest level and are held accountable to the highest level too Yes. Yes. I agree. I agree. And they, you know, again, it, the psychological assessment that we, that we all take, you know, that looks at certain things, but, you know, as trainers and leaders, we have to look at the, at the overall person. Right. And so, you know, if someone's been on for five or 10 years and they can't even go up the stairs to bring a patient down, that's a problem. You know, that that's a problem. So I agree with what you're saying. It's very necessary. Uh, Well, staying on the psychological testing for a moment, it's something that I've talked about quite a bit recently. I ended up working for four fire departments. And, you know, I always joke, I lied my way through three polygraphs successfully. And it's not, you know, I'm not (laughs) bragging or anything. I just had to. You know, I tried honestly at the beginning of my career, told them what I did years prior, you know, trying some, some, uh, you know, drugs that made you dance a lot. And I was immediately disqualified. I'm okay. I got it. I'm supposed to lie to be a firefighter, round and clear. So, um, you know, but apart from that, there was nothing on my record, clean, dry. I mean, everything crystal, you know, clear. But we did these polygraphs. We did these psych evals where it was thousands and thousands of questions, you know. And so my observation now is, as we mentioned, there are people that bring a lot of trauma into the profession. This profession attracts, I think, 
you know, people that have been abused because they want to stop that cycle. They want to be the protector. So my, my kind of philosophy is why not take that money? It's already there. You're already paying these, you know, these polygraphers and these, these psyche valve people and use it to, you know, you do a background check. You know, you want these 12 officers, put them through three, five counseling sessions while they're in academy, probation, whatever it is. So now you have an opportunity not only to offload some of the trauma, but you also have a relationship now with a counselor from day one. So the barrier to entry when you need to lean on someone is zero. I I think that is a fabulous idea. I think it's a fabulous idea. I think that, you know, of course we take, we, you know, take and we give the, you know, psychological assessments, you know, that's kind of a, to read people's personalities and that kind of stuff, which, you know, is important. But like you're saying, people need to understand from the beginning that it's okay to come and talk to someone. You know, I, I'm not sure how it is in the, in the fire department world, but in the police world, you don't want to go see one of those people because they're going to take your badge. They're going to take your gun. They're not going to let you work. They're going to make you ride a desk. And that's just humiliating, you know? So I think, you know, there's already, people are already thinking about that and there's already, you know, a prejudice towards therapy or getting some sort of psychological support. And what you're saying makes absolute sense. You know, once, once a week or, you know, a few, a few times, maybe once a month, whether, and then even once a month, you know, that's, that's, if the academy is six months long, that's six times you're meeting with someone, right? And that's better than nothing. And so, you know, I just remember the videos and stuff that they, they made us watch in the academy and everything. And I would think, wow, you know, that is, that's terrible, you know, what happened. And so even after presenting videos like that or doing some sort of training um, regarding traumatic situations, meet with those people and see how they're feeling, what their thoughts were. And I think too, to incorporate training on how you deal with your feelings and your emotions and those situations. And, you know, I think I told you before that I remember sitting at the end of my bed with my, you know, service weapon in my lap thinking, you know what, I, I can't do this anymore. This is just, this is just too much. Like it, I, you know, I'm at the end of my rope here and I, I don't want to lose my job. And, you know, if there would have been somebody then, or maybe someone like myself then that I am now, you know, that said, you know, let's just go and sit down and just talk or whatever, or me saying, you know, I can go and talk to James because him and I talked before and I know he's not going to judge me. He's just going to hear me out because a lot of it is just getting all this grief out of our system. You know, it's like a file cabinet. You can keep pushing the files back, but it's going to keep coming to the front. It's, you can only keep things in your subconscious for so long. And so I think what you're saying, there's a lot of validity to that. And people should start doing that, you know, open the door to that communication, give officers and firefighters and dispatchers a way to, you know, just dump off all this crap, you know, cause that's really in essence what it is. Other people's crap, you know, we're carrying around other people's pain and we have no way to let it go. Absolutely. Well, you, you touched on, you know, sitting there with your service weapon. So 
if you wouldn't mind, lead me through the journey that took you to that that very dark place. Well, I was, I had, you know, obviously seen, I was young and I had obviously seen a lot of, a lot of stuff, right? Working in CSI. And um, then my friend, my best friend had been killed in the line of duty. It was friendly fire by another officer that was a friend of mine. And it was just, I felt very conflicted. I felt very conflicted. I, you know, because people talk, that's one thing about, you know, the law enforcement and the fire department world, you know, just there's a lot of gossip, you know how it is and a lot of talk. And that happens because people just are drowning in a lot of, you know, trauma and misery of their own. And so there was so much talk about, you know, because my friend was African-American and the officer that killed him was Caucasian. So there was so much talk about, you know, how could he not know him? He had to know him, you know, and then people say, no, he killed him because he was black and he's white and this and that. And I was just so conflicted, you know, because I lost somebody that we talked on the phone all the time, you know, and we were very close and we shared a lot with each other opposed to, you know, my other friend who, you know, we were close and shared and had spent time and stuff together. And it's like, I just felt torn between the two. And then, you know, I just came right out and said, I can't, I can't work this shooting. Like this is, I can't do it because I cannot deal with that. You know, this is, I can't, I'm trying to deal with two people that matter to me. One is dead and the other one is still here. You know, his wife and family is traumatized. This officer is traumatized and it just was difficult for me. And I kind of got to the point then that, you know, I just, you know, kind of, I've always had an attitude, like you either accept me for who I am or you don't need to be around me because, you know, I'm, I'm fine with who I am. And so when I said, you know, I can't work this scene, my whole attitude, you know, was like, fuck you. You know, this is, I can't do this. I can't work this with a clear head. I can't, there's no way that I could do it. And so it was just really hard for me. And I, you know, at one point, you know, I just felt like, you know, there's no way out of this. You know, the pain was so, was so deep. And I just, I felt like, you know what, if it can happen to him, it can happen to me. And if it can happen to this guy, you know, it can happen to me. I don't want to be in this situation. And, you know, like you said, when all the noise is gone, there was no noise. It was complete silence. And I was just sitting there by myself. And I, and I just thought, you know what, if I do this, I don't have, I don't have to deal with anything else. I don't have to deal with the pain. I don't have to deal with, you know, the trauma from my childhood, any of the stuff that I've dealt with in my life, it will all be gone. And I just sat there thinking about it. And then I, I ended up thinking, you know what? I just, I can't, I can't do this to the people who care about me and the people who need me around. I can't, you know, this isn't, this isn't me. This isn't the right thing to do. I have to find another way. And so then I started going, I started seeing a therapist on my own time talking about what I was experiencing. And I would just go in there 
And, you know, he would say, what are you going to dump on me today? And I'd say, well, I have a whole lot of shit to dump on you. today." (laughs) And so, you know, I would just go in there and I would cry. I would pace around. I would be mad. And, you know, but that's that's ultimately, you know, what saved me was just, you know, figuring out there's people that need me and, and this is a selfish thing. And I knew that from studying in school that it's suicide is, is a very selfish thing. You know, the people left behind have no answers and I didn't want people to not have those answers. So I decided to, to push forward and create a better me and help other people that may be in that situation. Well, it's interesting that you said about selfish because that's, you know, something that I've has come up a lot with the people that, truly either were right there and was saved by someone else or you know, I've had people literally that pulled the trigger or jumped off the bridge and survived you know whether it was the the firing pin for whatever reason didn't fire the round or they survived the fall but uh you know one of the things that we hear I think one of the enemies of mental health is that you know oh suicide is cowardly you know so what how could they be so selfish but when you talk to these men and women at that moment in crisis, whether it's, you know, just the trauma alone, whether it's sleep deprivation, whether it's all these things factoring in, I, I hear over and over again that that person at that moment felt like they were a burden and that it was actually to them, it was a selfless act. I'm going to remove myself from the world. I'm going to stop hurting my family. They're not going to have to worry about it anymore. And it's so sad because obviously to the sound mind, that's completely opposite from common sense. But the brain was so miswired by that point in that crisis moment that they weren't being selfish. They, they were in their mind being selfless. You know what, that, that does make sense. So, you know, I think when, when I say, I know when I say selfish act, it's because there's no answers. Now, mind you, I, I do have friends of my own that completed suicide. So, you know, I, and I'm sure a lot of us have, so it's like, you know what it feels like on, on the other end. But, um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to think about the fact that, and to recognize the fact that suicide is often completed by people who, who have impulsive behavior. And so, what you're saying makes complete sense. They made a decision, they feel like it's best and there's no hesitation there. So I think it's so difficult for one people who have lost someone to suicide to kind of wrap their brain around that. Right. Because we all think, well, I could have done something different. Something could have been, you know, was there something that I missed? You know, how, how could I have been there for them? But I think it's necessary for us to be able to recognize both sides. And for me, like you're saying, the miswiring and the lack of sleep, all that kind of stuff. I've done a lot of research on, you know, working 12 hour shifts and 24 hour shifts and how that affects our ability to respond and that kind of stuff. So I can totally relate and understand people just being completely checked out, like they're at the end of their rope, right? And they, I mean, I felt like I was at the end of my rope, but I guess I wasn't at the very tip of it, right? Because I I had some time to think about what it was I was doing. And so I don't want anyone to think that 
you know, that I don't have compassion for those people or, or passion and empathy for people. But I do understand and recognize what you're saying as far as, you know, they think that it's just better that way. You know, they don't want to be a burden for some people. They don't want to lose their badge and gun or they don't, you know, that's like the tough way to go out, you know, when we're looking at like first responders and stuff. So I think overall, it's just a sad situation, you know, whether just any suicide attempt by anybody is a sad situation. And one thing that pisses me off so much, James, is when people say it's a cry for help or they're just crying for help. They weren't really going to do it. I don't, I don't believe that at all. You know, I believe the universe plays a role in, in all of this. And I think that if somebody tries and they don't succeed, that, it's a blessing and there's a reason for that and that they can help us be stronger and better dealing with our, our things moving forward. So I didn't, you know, I felt like I was at the end of my rope, but lucky for me, I was able to use the education and stuff that I had and try to think about a way out of the situation. But unfortunately not everybody has that ability. No, exactly. I think another compounding effect is alcohol too, sadly. You know, I think that takes away a lot of the, the barriers to, you know, completing suicide. So, um, well, I think a very important yeah. part of the story then is your journey into the psychology side. So when did it go from a study to facilitate your profession to something that you actually wanted to pursue as a profession later in your career? So I was doing my... I started my education at Penn State, obviously years ago. And then I went to, um, I did my bachelor's degree at a Christian university because I wanted to be able to incorporate people's belief in God and the universe, that type of thing. And then I was working night shift and I, I always worked full time and went to school full time because I left home at 18. So I always had, you know, bills to pay. I had to take care of myself. There wasn't anybody but me. So I always worked full time and went to school full time. But I ended up doing my master's degree in applied clinical psychology. And I did that while working night shift and working full time. And then I when doing my master's program. I did a lot of research on, you know, traumatic brain injury, post-concussive syndrome, PTSD, that kind of stuff. And then I thought, you know what? I don't feel at this level I can help enough. And so, you know, by the time I was finishing my master's degree, when someone was in crisis, I was always getting called on the on the private channel on the radio to come over and help. So then I felt like I didn't know enough. I wanted to know more. I felt like, you know, I think I want to make a career out of this when I retire. And so I ended up doing my doctorate in neuroclinical psychology. And then that's where I, I finished my specialization in traumatic brain injury and PTSD. And also I do a lot of work with um, substance use disorder. So I think the transition was just my curiosity, really just wanting to better understand, you know, why are people roaming the streets at night at two in the morning looking for drugs? Like, what does their life look like? What brought them there? You know, or how did this person end up being homeless after serving in the military and everything, you know, that they've 
that they've been through? How does that happen to someone who gave so much of themselves? So I think it was just curiosity, you know, and I just wanted to be the best that I could be and just help people the best that I could. And even to this day, I'm continuing to, you know, advocate for patients do right now I'm working on writing a business plan for neurofeedback to help with PTSD and better uh, plans for trauma informed care, because we need that, you know, you could just go through one traumatic incident in your life, and it can change your life and your perspective on everything for the rest of your life. So I think it was just curiosity, you know, and, and just wanting to be better and help people better than what I could at, you know, just my undergrad level. Beautiful. Well, you're such a good person for me to ask the next question. So there's a couple of things that, that have just hit me over and over and over again, how you could revolutionize the the health, you know, reduce the crime. Um, one is more health-based, it's the sleep deprivation side. So, you know, understanding that in shift workers, understanding that in general, the quality of sleep and what that does for overall health. But the other one that I talk about a lot is drug prohibition. I did very long story short, my mother moved to Portugal about 20 years ago. And when I started this podcast up, she said, Hey, James, did you know that we decriminalized addiction over here? And I had no idea. I mean, like a lot of good ideas, you never hear of them <laughs> on the mainstream media. Um, and so I ended up actually, when I was over there visiting my family, I flew to, I mean, drove to Lisbon and sat down with the guy who spearheaded this. Very long story short, they had a conflict in the 70s in one of the African nations that was a Portuguese colony, um, and a lot of their soldiers came back addicted to heroin. And so they ended up having this huge opiate epidemic. I think they had the worst worst epidemic in the whole of Europe, at least. And so being you know, thinking differently, Portugal was almost seen like a third world country by some, but I think it's very progressive because it's not bound by you know some Western philosophies. They said, well, look, the way we're not, we're doing it now, this, you know, prohibition model just isn't working. Let's try something else. So they ended up, um, making addiction legal, not selling, not smuggling. Those people were dealt with the full force of the law, but addicts, instead of criminals, became patients. So when you were detained, you were put into an interview with a counselor and just educated on the path that you can take. You weren't even forced to go to a, a clinic. But what it did is all these addicts that were scared of being um, arrested came out the shadows. And within less than 10 years, they went from the worst addiction in uh, Europe to the lowest addiction rate in Europe. They had a huge success. So having sat down with the person, having witnessed it in that country and then hearing about you know Switzerland doing the same thing, and I forget which country, one of the ones in, I think it's South America did it too. I, I take a step back, look at my 14 years as a firefighter, look at those 15-year-olds I covered with the sheets, look at the addicts, look at the homelessness. And when and to me, if we reframe addiction and put it in where it should be, which is mental ill health, it completely changes it. So then when you look at prohibition of drugs, you know, that to me is creating such a cycle of violence. And what we talked about earlier about, you know, the tack vests and, and the dangers that we have in, in on the streets you to me you remove the prohibition of drugs you take you cut the head off the snake of illicit drug sales 
you this it's nothing but a win 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 for the addict win for the police officer win for you know the potential drug dealer that now doesn't have that opportunity to go to that level of crime and is probably more likely to find them you know a, a legal job so that's obviously a loaded you know james's opinion with you now with a whole career in law enforcement with being in the addiction side from the mental health um, perspective what is your view on the prohibition of drugs and you know how can we improve? I am, first of all, I just love the information that you shared and it makes so much sense, you know, because one thing I can't, I can't stand is when people will say, well, that person's just a junkie or, you know, they're a junkie or, you know, they should be homeless because they're an addict and those types of things. I think that people forget that there are, working, functioning alcoholics and addicts that that work and provide for themselves and even their families, and they, they have a substance use disorder. And so I think, you know, of course, you know, comorbid, you know, behavior diagnosis such as substance use disorders and mental health, they totally go hand in hand. You know, some people will excuse me, have like um, schizophrenia or, you know, different types of severe mental illness that they stop taking their medication and then they're self-medicating with illicit drugs. And so, you know, they, they are so deep into their addiction that trying to get them out of that to get them the mental health assistance that started the issue in the first place you know, it can be very challenging. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, I tell my patients all the time, you didn't come out of the womb wanting to be a heroin addict. You didn't come out of the womb wanting to be an alcoholic or use methamphetamine. This things happened to you that brought you to this place. And so I am glad that you, you know, are talking about this is a people have mental health challenges and it can lead to substance use disorder or someone can be an alcoholic for many, many years and they end up with alcohol induced, um, Alzheimer's disease. So I think they, they correlate very strongly with one another. They go hand in hand. And what you're saying about, you know, they left the door open for these people to come out and talk and share they were able, I mean, in essence, they're getting therapy, you know, they're, they're getting therapy to talk about these issues that they have or what put them in the position that they're in. And that ability to share is so powerful and to have somebody, you know, empower you to be able to make changes. I, I strongly believe in that. And I think we can move mountains if everybody addressed mental health and substance use disorders that way. And if everybody got on the same page with that, that's amazing. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you for your perspective. And I think that, like I said, that's what I've seen. And, and the funds that they used for incarceration were used for addiction counseling, psychological counseling, job creation. So setting these people up to 
deal with the trauma that they have and then groom them to be functioning members of society. You know, and then there's obviously that small amount of people that no matter what you do, they stay addicts, but then with them, they have safe injection sites and, you know, they actually can go to a place so you don't get the fentanyl overdoses and all these other things that you and I have seen in our career. So just looking at those people as a holistic human being, not only, you know, empties the prisons and clears the court systems, but it allows the law enforcement resources to be used for the pedophiles and murderers, all the true criminals that we should be throwing the law at. Well, and that, and that's really what needs to be done. I mean, I, when I first moved to California, I was an administrator. I assisted with starting up a crisis center in Riverside County and police officers were able to bring individuals that they came in contact with that you know were substance had substance use disorders or mental health um, challenges. They were able to bring them there and drop them off. They didn't take them to the jail. They didn't you know for petty crimes and things that you know we had a relationship with the police department. They would just bring them over and drop them off to us, and we would let them get a shower, and they were able to clean their clothes and get food. And then we found other placement for them to get them off the street. So. That's the type of things that need to be in place for us to help these individuals. And I think, you know, a lot of times as police officers, you know, sometimes we see individuals in in those types of situations. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen it yourself with people with substance use disorders or mental health disorders. They are very strong when they are aggressive. (laughs) So, oh, yes. Yeah, they you know, they, we call it that, you know, mental health strength, but, um, they are very strong when they are aggressive. And I think us dealing with those situations, you know, if people are educated and they're more able to talk those people down, you know, or speak to them and deal with their crises so that it doesn't escalate to that, then it will be a lot easier for, police officers and firefighters, different people to handle those situations. And then instead of taking them to jail, take them to another place or provide them resources or, you know, a safe haven where they can go to get back on their feet. I think we need to remember that they're human beings and they didn't ask to have the challenges that they have. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. I use the, the metaphor of a kindergarten or a pre-K, you know, all the kids running around playing they're not thinking of one day I want to live under a bridge. You know, they're just, they're just, you know, children. And as we mentioned, so many of these children have things put upon them. They didn't choose to get sexually abused or witness domestic violence. Or in one case, I have a, a guy in Sierra Leone whose parents were murdered and forced to be a boy soldier. You know, there's, there's trauma that's thrust upon these children and that it's not their fault. So as they grow up, you know, some do well, some overcome their trauma, some just become those beacons, but some aren't. And the rest of us need to lift those people up because, as you said, they did not choose to this one chance, this one life we get. They didn't choose to have the shittiest version of it. You know, if you're enjoying a good life, you owe it to everyone else to help raise them up so they can enjoy the same kind of life that you are. Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. Unfortunately, not everybody looks at it that way. And if more people would just educate themselves to understand, like you said, that people don't ask to be sexually abused or physically abused or, you know, be a victim of any type of violence. 
I think if people would, you know, open their hearts and their minds to, you know what, that could be any of us. You know, we all have been through things in our life. We all have seen things and had challenges. So, you know, obviously we had people to go to that could point us in the right direction and support us. But, you know, if you're a homeless man who, you know, like you said, has been living under a bridge because you were in a car accident and lost your wife and your three children, you know, why does he not deserve compassion too and a chance? 100%. You know, he, yes, yes, he deserves the same chance as the rest of us. We all deserve to have a good life just because we have a challenge with, you know, mental health or substance use disorder or PTSD or something that doesn't that doesn't give us the right to judge them and treat them poorly. And I I think one thing that really pisses me off is when, you know, people have served our country, you know, and they have deployed and been overseas and they come back and just fell apart. You know, people saying, well, he could have got help from the VA. He could have done this. He could have done that. No, you know, he's just like everyone else where, you know, he's told he can't share his experiences and he's having a hard time. So at what point do you as a fellow soldier or Marine step up and say, hey, how can I help you? You know, how hard is it to step up and help the person versus saying they didn't have to be that way? They chose to be that way. No, their pain is so significant, you know, that just functioning every day is difficult. Exactly. Well, one thing, and I'm not bashing the VA, but one thing that many, many of the members of military have told me is the their experience at the VA was just being given prescription meds. And the irony of drug prohibition is that I've had multiple Navy SEALs, it just happens to be the SEALs in these conversations, that had to leave the US and go to a different country to have psilocybin-related therapy that was hugely successful. So these men and women that the most elite operators that we have that fought for this country and you know watched their friends die for this country have to go to a different country to get the treatment to deal with the cost of their service, which is just insanity as well. Yeah, that that will never, ever make sense to me, ever. I, I think it's, I just cannot fathom how, you know, we have people serving our country and when they come back, they can't, they can't get the help that they need. And, you know, so many of my friends that served in the military would tell me I can't function as a civilian. I can't deal with the thoughts and the things going on in my head. I can't get any help. I think I'm just going to go back in and that they shouldn't feel that way. No, because that's the worst reason to go back in for a start. <laughs> yes, it totally is. It totally is. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, that's how a lot of people feel. And that's how it is for, you know, us as police officers and firefighters, like you said, we just stay busy. You know, we stay busy and we keep going until we can't go anymore. Absolutely. Well, that's a good segue. So keeping of, of staying busy, um, another area that I see a lot of people struggle is transitioning, whether it's through retirement, whether it's through promotion to a desk job, whether it's from an injury or even being, you know, terminated. Um, 
yeah that's that's you've got that tribes it's another another layer another element is you're with those group of men men and women and then one day you're not anymore whether it's the bay door closing behind you retirement whether it's you find yourself in your apartment lying because of a back injury so what was your specific transition like when you decided to, to to retire from that chief level position and focus on the psychology side oh you know what it James, the transition is a bitch. <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not even going to lie to you, brother. Um, you know what? It it's hard. You know, it, initially I felt very out of place. I felt very lost. You know, I had this education to, you know, help other people and you know to help people with PTSD and stuff. I had all this education, but I was still trying to find my way. I felt kind of like I was roaming the earth lost. You know, there was no compass. I was just going in circles. And so, you know, I felt very lost and that I didn't really have a purpose. And so it, it was dark for me for a while. You know, I kept telling myself, you know, just focus on what you're doing. Of course, I've always stayed in contact with the guys from my old platoon and from my old department. Um, cause I just, you know, it, we just have that bond, you know, and it's important to stay in touch and be there for one another. And we're like family, but I ended up joining a search and rescue back mountain dog team, a back mountain search and rescue dog team, because I just felt like I wasn't giving enough, you know, and my family and friends thought that it was crazy. You know, you're not giving enough. You're, you know, you work 10, 12 hours a day and all you're doing is helping patients and, but I just, there was something about that, not having that get up and go, you know, that emergency response, you know, that ump in my soul that I felt lost. So I ended up doing that and that really has fulfilled me. I train, you know, every week with my dog, I get to travel all over the state and, you know, and for a good purpose, you know, whether it's, you know, we do cadaver and also lie find, you know, missing people. So it's, that's what really brought me peace and what made me feel like, you know what, I can make it through the rest of my life now, you know, cause I got on law enforcement at a young age. So, you know, when it was time to get out, I was still young, you know? <laughs> so I think, I think if I could give any advice, I would say, hang in there. And, you know, if you're coming from some sort of profession, you know, like firefighting, uh, police work, paramedic, anything like that, you're going to need something exciting to fill that drive because that light doesn't burn out. It doesn't burn out. You still want to help. You still want to give your time. You still want that burst of adrenaline. So, you know, after you get settled in, to wherever you are, you need to find something to fuel that fire. Because if not the, you know, the light is, it's just going to be, you know, a little bit of glimmer in there, but it's never going to go out. And I think as far as people that, you know, go to like a desk job or something like that, you know, or like you said, injured or, you know, has hurt their back or whatever, you know, find something else that, you enjoy, you know, sometimes we promote and we're like, this is great. You know, I'm about to be promoted, but we forget that when we promote, you know, to corporal sergeant, whatever, you know, that there's a transition with that. Right. So, and 
we were excited. Yeah, we got promoted and we're making this transition. But unfortunately, the transition comes with us sacrificing some of ourselves, right? Because, you know, now you're a sergeant and you're going from, you know, working the street and being with your platoon to working in the criminal records division, you know, and overseeing civilians or whatever. So I think it's important just to remember that you have to find something exciting, something that's going to, you know, fuel that fire that you have inside. Because if you're coming from working the street, you know, in low income housing, you are not going to do well sitting in the records division as a sergeant, it's going to be a struggle. So, you know, those transitions are normally temporary. So, you know, just start focusing on the next goal. What's the next goal? What's the, where's the next place you want to go? What do you need to do to get there? You know, never stop looking at the journey ahead. I think that's, that's the best advice I could get. Fuel the fire and never stop looking at the journey ahead. I love it. That's some great advice. Thank you so much. And I think that's something because that, I struggled with it a bit when I transitioned out, but I, I had a realization that the core of what we do is to help. So if, if you can find another way of helping, it may not be wearing a uniform anymore, but that core, um, you know, journey, that core through line is the same. I think that's that's an element. And of course, adrenaline, there's no question. <laughs> We're all adrenaline junkies at the end of the day. But but yeah, yeah. I mean, find another way, even if you're hurt, like you said, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's, you know, just being, being on the end of the phone for people that you know are going through it. But yeah, I think that that service is what it was in us from day one. And it doesn't just go away when you take the, the badge off your chest. I agree. I agree. Well said. Well said. Well, I want to touch on one more area before we transition to some closing questions, if you've got time. Um, you had mentioned about TBI, and that's another area that as I, you know, I'm a perpetual student with this project, the more I learn from some of the, you know, the psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, neuroscientists, the more I see TBI mirroring, um, you know, TBI, sleep deprivation, you know, creating PTSD, creating mental ill health. Obviously, some of the examples would be uh, Aaron Hernandez, Junior Sayers. Um, so what has been your observations with TBI? Obviously, it's probably more prominent in law enforcement than fire, but very, very prominent in the military. The relationship between TBIs and mental health. Oh, it, it is so, it's so significant. I did, I did research before on, on minor traumatic brain injury in adolescents, right? Kids that play football and do, you know, high school and middle school sports, how does that affect their learning, right? Because they're, if you're playing football and, you know, you're ramming yourself into someone, you're obviously, you know, you keep battering your, your frontal lobe of your brain, you know, that, that's, you know, where our common sense comes from. That's where we learn, you know, so those, if you're continuously battering that while you're going through high school, you know, there's probably a good reason why you're struggling a little bit with your academics and college, you know, but I think, you know, first of all, it's when you look at, you know, traumatic brain injury, get that, you know, a lot of times, that obviously coincides, it goes with PTSD, because if you are in a situation to have a traumatic brain injury or a mild concussion, 
you most likely witness something or have been involved in something that that is going to affect you psychologically, right? Because that's a tremendous amount of force. So a lot of times, you know, as you said, we see that in military, in the military, whether it's with, you know, an accident or some sort of IED or, you know, an explosion, something like that. So they go hand in hand. But I think what what people don't understand is that when you have a traumatic brain injury that, you know, if it doesn't, or even a concussion, if it doesn't heal correctly over time, or if it's drawn out for a significant amount of time, then you end up with post-concussive syndrome, which is more significant symptoms of PTSD. So it's, it's like you have a concussion from playing football, but you're depressed. You're having a hard time getting up and doing things that you would normally do. And you're feeling suicidal and that type of stuff. Those kinds of things are geared more towards PCS because there's a, excuse me, there's an issue with the healing. So, you know, traumatic brain injuries and mental health, whether it's, you know, you had a TBI and you're affected with PTSD because of what you went through that got you there, or, you know, you're upset because maybe you play, you know, you've played football your whole life and you had a concussion and the doctor is like, you can't play anymore. You know, we see this all the time with, you know, NFL players and stuff where, you know, they have just repeatedly beat their body up over and over again. And, you know, they're, they're told, well, you, you shouldn't play anymore or you have to stop playing. And that obviously affects their mental health. They become depressed. Sometimes they become suicidal because that transition, they lose themselves. And we also can't forget about the fact that, you know, there's professional wrestlers and stuff that go through that. I, I can't remember his name, but I, he had killed his whole family, you know, based on, um, he was just having random thoughts and different things going on. And so, you know, situations like that, where we're continuously beating our bodies up, especially our heads and our brains, you know, that's, it's going to have a significant impact on our mental health and just our psychological well-being overall. So, you know, if, if someone plays sports or in fights, you know, as a police officer, that kind of stuff, you can't just let that stuff go because that can, it can go grow into something so significant. And, and a lot of times it's along the line of depression or, you know, people, sometimes people may hear voices or have a lot of issues with their vision and stuff. And they're ashamed to talk about it or say that they're having an issue. And so it just progresses into something more significant. So a lot of times I see patients that have had a traumatic brain injury and they just didn't, you know, do what they were supposed to, or they left it go because they were ashamed or they didn't want to lose something or have something be taken from them that they enjoy such as sports or something. And they end up having a significant amount of mental health issues or challenges later because they didn't give their brain and their body the opportunity to heal. So they, they do definitely go hand in hand. 
I'm not sure if that answers your question, though. I kind of went on a little bit of a brain tangent there. <laughs> no, that was fantastic. And I think that's that's just it. The the rest of it was Chris Benoit. And I actually saw a documentary, I think it was on Netflix, about three or four months ago where they, they led everyone through and, and they showed, I think just with that Aaron Hernandez, I think the autopsy showed that there was damage, if I'm not mistaken, to his brain. But, you know, I think another mistake that we make is um, – you know, people will just factor in, oh, it was that, you know, and then people argue, oh, it wasn't that. Well, people forget there's layers. So say Chris, for example, had a rough upbringing, you know, and then say he wasn't sleeping well, and then he had all those concussions. Well, now you're creating that perfect storm the same way as some of these school shooters. I think uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman has a a very powerful point that a lot of these shooters were gamers and what do gamers do at night? They stay up all night and they, they play video games. So you have psychosis and you have sleep deprivation and, and you, again, you get this perfect storm that, you know, gets 16 year olds walking into schools with, um, you know, with weapons. So I think that understanding the cumulative effect of a multiple of factors is a, is a, is a powerful perspective where we can take a step back and look at all, all the elements that contribute to mental ill health. Yeah, that's so true. And I'm glad you brought up the the point about the video games. I tell all, all of my, my former military patients or military patients, I tell them no video games. They will sit for hours and play video games. And I, I need to send you some of this stuff I wrote. I, I did research on that the violence that comes from video games, from gaming. And there's a strong correlation between video games and violence, whether it's physical aggressive violence or gun violence, there is a direct correlation between the two. And so if you were in the military or you're dealing with some sort of issue, you do not need to be playing video games. You can sit down and play a board game with someone and exercise your brain and work your brain that way, but you do not need to be playing video games, especially violent ones. To me, that's a big no-no. The brain doctor is saying no-no on the video games. <laughs> well, it was so interesting hearing his uh, perspective. He wrote a book called Assassination Generation, and you know the sleep deprivation was a huge one. Because I remember when when that kind of philosophy first came out, video games are behind the shootings, and everyone kind of rolled their eyes. But when you look at it more psychologically, you look at the effects of sleep deprivation, how we use sleep deprivation in interrogation, you know, it, it's it's designed to break people down. But then you look at the operant conditioning, the reward system of these first person shooter games, where the more people that kill, the, the more f positive feedback you get. And you again, you put all these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, then you add psychiatric meds, you add, you know, the lone wolf syndrome. And again, you have this perfect storm that creates these horrendous murders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it all, like you said, it all plays off of one another. And, you know, it's, I love what you said about operant conditioning. I'm, I'm so about positive and negative reinforcement. It truly, truly works. That's how, you know, I trained my dog to find people, you know, is, you know, it, I mean, it's true, you know, she, she wants to please me. And when she does something right, and I show her that I'm pleased, she's very happy about that. And that's the same you know, with human beings, you know, we learn from one another by positive or 
negative things occurring, you know? So if you're in a marriage with someone and your wife likes flowers, you're most likely going to bring her flowers, you know, because you want her to feel loved. You want to see her happy. So I like that you brought that up. And it's just so important, like you said, that we look at all the factors, all of these factors come into play with one another, you know, playing sports and getting a traumatic brain injury and, you know, being in the military or former military playing these, these, you know, violent video games, all of these things come together. Then what you said about sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation causes psychosis. It causes psychosis. Your brain has to automatically rest, you know, it has its own metabolism. And so it, it has to rest. It has its own way of, you know, healing your neurons and fixing your neuroplasticity. So if you've had a brain injury and you want to sit for 20 hours out of a 24 hour day and play a video game, your brain is not healing. It's not healing because you're not sleeping. And, you know, people want to stay up all night and or they have like some sort of PTSD issue and they're not able to sleep, our brains are designed to automatically shut down between like two or three. So anybody who's worked a midnight shift like that knows what I'm talking about. That's when you're like, oh man, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning is the hardest for me. And so and that's because your brain is like shutdown time. I I gotta get some sleep in. You know, I have to get some sleep in. So you know, it's, I always encourage people to, you know, we do everything the same way every single day. And that causes us to lose neuroplasticity in our brains. And so, you know, that's why I tell people play Sudoku, do, do a, you know, a crossword puzzle, do a word find, put a puzzle together. That's not stuff you do every day. So that's exercising your brain. So people can't forget we exercise our bodies. We have to exercise our brains too. Or if not, when we get into our, our fifties, we're going to start noticing some, you know, neurological changes, some cognitive changes that we're not going to like, and we're going to be wondering why. And it's because James, we sat and played the video game. I'm telling you. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I love that. Thank you so much. Some great perspective. Well, I'd love to transition to some closing questions. I know we've gone way over what we said we were going to do, but, uh, you know, as always, I get, I get so engaged and, and love hearing, you know, a, a journey manifest organically. So, you know, that's obviously the, the, the time that we needed to take. So the first of the, the questions I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can pertain to what we've discussed or something completely different. Oh gosh. I read nerdy stuff, James. That's not a good <laughs> question. Um, Hmm. I wish I could recommend something, but I, you know what? I read a lot of like Patricia Cornwell mystery kind of stuff, and that's not for everyone, but I like to read a lot of books about, you know, people overcoming PTSD or just learning, you know, how to handle personal crises, that kind of stuff. Right now, lately, I've been reading a lot of stuff about, surviving in the back mountains and that kind of thing. So I wish I could recommend something. Unfortunately, all my, all the stuff I read is like either around police work that I used to do, you know, fueling that fire or just trying to educate myself better involving the brain and stuff. So if I think of one, I'll definitely let you know, but 
I, I would say, you know, follow your passion, you know, what, whatever is interesting to you, definitely read. And if you've had some sort of brain injury or PTSD, anything like that, you know, find a book that's positive and fulfilling. That's going to talk about how you overcome that. Beautiful. All right. Well, the same question, but a movie and or documentary that you love. Oh, okay. So I love the movie. I've watched it over and over again. I love the movie about Eric Marsh. I'm trying to think of what it's called. Only the Brave? Only the Brave, yes. Yes, I love that movie. I just think it's a beautiful story. And it just, it's just such an amazing story about, you know, firefighters and bravery and loss it's just so many things that come into one so i love that movie perfect well speaking of wildland firefighters how did you meet jason okay so jason was stationed at the north cascade base that is in winthrop washington where i was a chief in in uh the okanagan valley so i or Medhow valley so um he I saw him, I was at like some get together, you know, I had to go to this political thing and he was there and I ended up meeting him. And then we just ended up becoming friends and he would bring, you know, people from Surefire and and different companies by to see me. And I would, you know, representatives and I would talk to them about purchasing certain things. And so that's how I ended up meeting him. And he just always, it would, it was so funny, James, because you know, he has that van, he has that van that he can like live out of, like, he's just all over the place, you know, going from place to place. And he, the, my guys would say, I saw that guy today, your friend, what's his name? The guy with the van. <laughs> and they said they, the guy with the van that brings us all the cool stuff so yeah, that's, that's how I ended up meeting, meeting him. And then we became good friends. And, you know, of course I'm always a sounding board for him and, you know, if he needs to share anything. So yeah, that's a story of me and Jason. <laughs> Very cool. Brilliant. Yeah. He has, he, we did the uh, interview we did from his van too. His, his uh, signal was good enough. So that was the uh, first time I've done a van interview. Yeah. <laughs> He's amazing though. That guy is amazing. And he also introduced me to Amanda, Amanda Marsh, and she is amazing also. So I, you know, gave them both my information. They've referred people to me for, you know, assistance for PTSD and and that kind of stuff. And so it's, I just, you know, that's what fuels my fire. That's what, that's what keeps me going. Yeah. Yeah. Amanda's an amazing woman. Absolutely amazing. Well, speaking of, of, you know, people that, you know, is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Oh, my goodness. Um, I know a lot of people. Um, I'll have to think of, I'll have to think about it because I, I've worked with so many amazing people over the years. I'll have to think about it. I can definitely give you you know, a good referral of maybe, um, I have a friend of mine that served in the military for 20 years and then he retired and now he works in law enforcement. So 
Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to think about that and and send you some people, give you some names. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, next question. What do you do to decompress? I work out or train with my dog. Brilliant. The dog we've heard in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I apologize. I I told you the gardener came right when we started this this interview now she's exhausted she's ran all of her her bark and bite out but yes i apologize for my time well don't apologize because you heard mine yapping in the background too so they've been talking to each other through the microphone yes <laughs> yes <laughs> all right well then the very last question then um if people want to learn more about you if they want to find your treatment center or if they want to find you on social media where are the best places to find learn more about you and contact you Okay, so I'm on Instagram and it's at dr. Dr. R. L. Schwab, S C H W A B. And I'm also on LinkedIn under Dr. R. L. Schwab, same spelling. And that was hard for me just to do those two, James, because you know how cops are. We don't want anybody, you know, anybody to. <laughs> no to know our our stuff so yeah linkedin i tend to get a little bit more rough because i gotta hold my weight with the other chiefs on there but yeah so i try to i try to get on different social media but it's hard for me you know it's only been a few years since i retired i'm still expanding you know still trying to you know head out there it's a little difficult though i'd say you're on the two best platforms though i mean twitter is uh, no, i've never never engaged well with twitter and then facebook is i think so diluted and so um you know so monetized now that if you have anything of value no one ever gets to see it unless you pay them to <laughs> promote it so whereas instagram's yeah. always been a you know solid for me and i think in the business world linkedin is good too so i, I think you, yeah. you you've peaked <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. I mean, I, I am very passionate about, you know, defending first responders and that kind of thing. So, you know, sometimes I have, you know, thrown out some, some tweets where I'm like, you know, what the hell are you talking about? You don't know what you're talking about. Go sit down. You know, <laughs> so I definitely have, I definitely have had my, my moments on, on LinkedIn and stuff, but, but I'm trying, you know, to expand my horizon there. Brilliant. All right. Well, L, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, as with so many people that come on here, you know, the, the, I think the storytelling element, especially from a person, you know, who's walked the walk, whether it's, you know, their own mental health journey, whether it's the position they held in whatever profession they were at, I think they're very, very powerful voices that really resonate people. And I think, you know, the, you know, the PowerPoint presentations, the clinical side has has a place, but I think really connecting with our men and women, you know, it's the storytelling that really resonates. So thank you for telling your story. And, and it's just a powerful parallel between your law enforcement journey and your, and your mental health, um, you know, work as well. So I appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. And I appreciate everything that you're doing because everyone needs support. So I appreciate you being being that face and that voice for everyone. Well, hopefully just the voice. No one wants to see my face. <laughs> <laughs>